James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bare tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are studied various. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. Do you know what I can do with my little finger? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, Series 2, Episode 5. Thank you very much indeed for joining us in the cubbyhole, much like the three blind mice in Dr. No. We might not be able to see you, but your presence is very much felt and appreciated. Uh, remember, the show is available to stream and download on all good podcasting apps and websites. And if you're feeling generous, please consider leaving us a review, because firstly, they let us know whether you're enjoying the show. And secondly, they let other Bond fans know the cubbyhole is a worthwhile place to visit. Speaking of which, you can join us on social media as well, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Likes and follows always welcome. Or you can get in touch via email, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. We do always love to go through your correspondence, and as ever, we'll try to pick as many of your questions as possible to feature in a Q-Branch segment at the end of each show. Now, in our previous episode, we heard from pun-loving scriptwriter and author of Quantum of Silliness, Robbie Sims. We discussed our 007 best allies of the franchise, and Phil shared his surprisingly popular Dream Another Day wacky theory concerning Pierce Brosnan's last hurrah. But what adventures do we have in store for this week's episode? Let's find out with the help of our usual hosting team. Firstly, he's the Christoph Waltz to my Telly Savales. And when I say Christoph Waltz, I obviously mean stuntman Dave Cronnelly. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? I'm very well, thanks, Martin. To be honest, I'm uh, I'm overjoyed to be uh, to be classed as Christoph Waltz slash stuntman Dave Cronnelly. I think that's uh, an honour and a privilege to be uh, in such highly esteemed company. Um, as ever, it's just a really quick shout out this week to everybody that's been getting in touch with us on our social media channels, so of course Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We also had a great response to episode three of the uh, the podcast. A lot of people getting in touch with us about the uh, the leading ladies. Gerard Saparosi actually mentioned that he thought Famke Janssen as uh, Zenia Onotop should have won in his eyes. We also had an intriguing mention that uh, Jill St. John as Tiffany Case um, should have been considered. Um, so Daniel mentioned on Twitter, not sure why I never see Jill St. John vote, so I must be alone out here. Possibly yes, because we definitely didn't include her. Yeah, I, I do have to disagree with everyone who said we should have had uh, Tiffany Case on our 007 leading ladies list. I mean, she couldn't even effectively hide a cassette tape. Yeah, in fairness, there was only one person on Twitter who suggested Tiffany Case. So most people did see sense with that one, I think. Was was that person, in fact, Jill St. John? No, it was. I'll double check. I believe it was uh, a chap called Daniel. So um, Daniel? What, Daniel Craig? I mean, technically, he doesn't have a surname. So I'm not, I'm not entirely sure if it is Daniel Craig or if it's just, you know, he's, he's like Madonna and he just doesn't have a surname. Surprise appearance from Jill St. John in No Time to Die, perhaps. we You never know. But, uh, there's plenty to love about Diamonds Are Forever, but Jill St. John's performance is not one of them. She's certainly not as good as in Batman the TV series when she's the one doing that crazy 60s psychedelic dancing with him. And talking of Diamonds Are Forever, secondly, he's the Charles Grey to my Donald Pleasance. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? 
You're showing a little more cheek than usual today, Martin. Uh, I'm very well. I'm very good, thank you. I just wanted to quickly pick up Phil on something, because a, a few weeks ago now, he started whinging about the state of 007 merchandise. And then my parents alerted me. You know that the ultimate bit of 007 merchandise is currently available. There are 25, I think, limited edition 3.3 million pound Aston Martin DB5s which are kitted out with all the actual gadgets of the Goldfinger Thunderball Aston. Yes, it is a very nice idea if you do happen to have more than $3 million in the bank. Sadly, I don't. Yeah, which, which of the gadgets on it would you most look forward to having a go with? I, I mean, I think for me, it would obviously be the ejector seat. I mean, I'm not sure who I'd want next to me when I used it, though. There's a couple of people we were at school with though, who come to mind, but beyond that, I'm not sure. Yeah, it'd be quite useful if you had like a backseat driver, well, front seat driver in this case, but if you had somebody that was winding you up on a long journey, you could just threaten them with the ejector seat. Well, you were quite an ang angry driver back in the day, Phil, and I'm glad that you didn't have access to that facility. It's not very comfortable, is it? Are you going to complain the whole way? Oh, go on then, eject me. See if I care. So it's time for the first segment of the show, On the Scene. And this week, we're going to examine the time that Bond, M, and Kincaid spend in the isolated confines of the Skyfall Lodge. And uh, while I'm sure you can't wait to hear our opinions of the scene, we should probably first get a recap of what happens. So it's over to Mr. Alan Partridge. Bond and Her Majesty Dame Judi Dench made it all the way up the M1 without her getting ejected and stare moodily at some misty highlands. Orphans always make the best recruits. God, why are you bringing up my dead parents, woman? Jesus! They recreate the mountain driving shots from the start of The Shining before arriving at Bond's childhood home Skyfall with its massive horny stag on a plinth and crumbling shack of a mansion. Christ, no wonder you never came back. God, you're slagging off my house now. I should have let Silver shoot you. Then Lord Albert of Finney pops up in seven layers and a shotgun, gets M's name wrong, and tells him all the guns got sold off. If all else fails, sometimes the old ways are the best. Lord Albert of Finney gives Bond a hard time at target practice, and then treats Her Majesty Dame Judi Dench to a look down his back passage. The night I told him his parents had died, he hid in here for two days. When he came out, he wasn't a boy anymore. Then they all home alone the shit out of the place and Bond slags them off for writing him a corny obituary. I knew you'd hate it. The end. Thank you very much, Alan, for that summary there of what happens in the scene. One of my favourite parts, I think, of Skyfall, and it is a brilliant film, so it's quite quite difficult to achieve that, but uh, but it certainly does. It's great that we get a bit of backstory. Of course, we've had Bond backstory in the past, and we've had callbacks to previous films, uh, but it's never really gone this far, has it, back into the past to Bond's childhood home. We had a bit of a disagreement in our previous episodes about Kincaid's, how good Kincaid is as uh, an ally to Bond. Personally, I think he's not particularly good. I mean, he he sells all the weapons of the home just as just before they need all of them, and then as I've mentioned before, he he's not great at uh, taking M to the uh, to the chapel. I mean, I think uh, Albert Finney, of course, does an excellent job with the character, um, and I'm glad it wasn't Sean Connery as uh, as it may have been. Yeah, I must admit, I love the cinematography of this whole sequence as well. You know, right up to the point where we're leaving London, and obviously M and Bond. Are on their own, but literally and figuratively. And they've then got to try and defend themselves. And really, Kincaid is kind of there to offer, for the most part, light relief in many respects. You know, he's sort of there taking 
the mickey out of Bond for quite a lot of it, you know, saying, now remember I told you how to shoot and things like that, and obviously Bond blows the um, the clay pigeons out of the sky. But there's also great moments of poignancy. You know, you get the sense that Bond and Kincaid's relationship is, particularly probably after after his parents died, he was probably the only kind of close friend that Bond really had. And, you know, and that is reflected in the facts of how Kincaid reacts to him being back and things like that. And it's it's just really nice how that all plays out. And it's just really emotive, the fact of that mix of sort of light relief and poignancy. Yeah, I think this is one of my favourite Bond finales of all. And this is this build up to it, the way it looks into all of those three characters, I think is just fantastic. Most Bond films just get bigger and bigger as they go along and they build to a huge finale. This deliberately doesn't do that. It subverts that. The whole film collapses into this intimate showdown. And yeah, you're absolutely right about Kincaid, but also about M and what this does to those characters. It contrasts them as sort of mother and father substitutes for Bond. But it also makes clear the fact that neither of them really know him. Each of them only has half of the story. I mean, you know, Albert Phineas Kincaid only knows Bond's past. Judy Dench's M only knows his presence. She doesn't know where he's from and admits that and has to come to grips with that and confront that fact. It's also quite interesting, the fact that they're kind of, again, back to basics. So there's no sort of elaborate gadget. So there's no way that Bond is going to escape this. You, I mean, you could discredit the Aston Martin, perhaps. But other than that, it's basically, you know, it's it's very much sword off shotguns and and you know and and things such as that so it's it's very very back to basics espionage effectively I, I wanted to mention the when they're driving up of course it's debatable about the logic of that scene of whether it's actually necessary for them to actually go to skyfall but i think i really love that drive up with the classic aston martin db5 you get the the music the bond theme from goldfinger playing to remind us of the past always like a a good callback uh, you know me very different to Die Another Day, of course, which uh, hit you over the head with references. This is much more, I mean, it's not subtle, but it is, it's just, I remember watching it in the cinema and thinking, yes, this is this is the kind of callback that I want. Well, it's brilliant, isn't it? And it gives you that callback and it gives you the classic Goldfinger music. But then as soon as they get to Scotland, everything changes. Thomas Newman's gloomy choral music kicks in. The atmosphere is incredibly oppressive and ghostly. And of course, the house set as well with the dust sheets and the shadows, the fact that it's so colourless also gets that eerie and haunted feel. And just those those landscapes, those Scottish mountain landscapes that Roger Deakins photographed so beautifully. It's really epic framing, but it's very different to anything I can think of in any other Bond film. We've never quite seen Bond that dwarfed by everything around him and that exposed and as wide in the open. Yeah, and again, that's where the kind of, well, as you say, Adam, that kind of vulnerability from those two characters, and, and they're so dependent on each other because obviously M is dependent on Bond to keep her safe and then because his knowledge in the field is basically protecting both of them. But also kind of M is there's reassurance as well. You know, Bond isn't on his own fighting them. Yeah, I mean, Daniel Craig's acting here is, is great. He's not given that much to do in terms of dialogue, but just the look on his face, he's clearly genuinely got a lot of hatred for this place. You know, the trauma of the past is barely contained in his performance. And I love that we get that mythic origin of Bond as well, that story of him literally emerging from the darkness of trauma and lost and coming up from the underground having become this kind of mythological hero, as it were. Yeah, I mean, we've said that Craig 
is not good at not that good at the humor but i think he he does actually his little looks that he gives especially the the ejector seat when m says eject me see if i care and uh, just the little looks he gives m in, in several moments of the scenes really break the uh, the tension of course it the tension does ramp up eventually at the end but uh, it's nice to have those little lighter moments yeah, those moments of humour are so important. And also the fact that it's quite a potty mouthed set of scenes as well. I mean, even M drops an F-bomb at the end of it. And yeah, like you say about Craig, that moment when he says, oh yeah, I read your obituary of me, by the way. Appalling. Just the, the, the disdain of that one line is fantastic. But that's a great scene because the humour drives home the fact that actually there's a lot of forgiveness from Bond going on in that. He's accepting M's decisions, but he's also reasserting his own pride at being British, his pride in spite of everything of serving his country and serving M. That kind of cockiness isn't as pronounced as it usually is on his mission. So he's kind of, he does seem a little bit more nervous. And obviously M and Kincaid in particular are also looking very sheepish and very afraid of what's to come. But it really kind of shows, I think Daniel Craig does it really well, that sense of it shows Bond in his weaknesses. He's able to... Um, to show his ingenuity. Yeah, and, and on Kincaid, I am going to disagree with you, mine. I think he's a great Bond ally. I think Finney is just wonderful in this role. The whole heritage and the history of that character and where he fits into the Bond mythology is immediately communicated just in the warmth of his voice, that sort of cuddly, grizzled, bare persona. And he does exemplify the fact that to take on this very technologically advanced villain, they are going back to very analogue, basic you know, raw bone and wood weaponry. Yeah, I mean, I can't disagree with any of that, Adam. He is a, I agree, he's a lovable character. He just, uh, he could have helped a bit more, is all I'm saying. <laughs> and he, he doesn't, that must have been a long pathway as well to the chapel. And not once does he realise that M is gasping for breath and is mortally wounded. I mean, yeah, I do concede it's entirely possible that by, that by dragging M across that moor, he probably did kill her. No, I think it's full credit to Albert Finney. I think he's an inspired choice for for the role of Kincaid, you know, and I totally agree, Adam. I think that mix of sort of cuddly but gruff kind of caretakers that he does so well is is brilliantly acted and performed. And it's, it I, again, I know there were rumours that kind of Connery was going to come back for that, which I think would have been a mistake. Yeah, I did notice that Kincaid's first words in the film are uh, saying James Bond's name. So maybe that was uh, that was left in the script for the possibility of Connery to to say it. Could Connery have just said James Bond though? Surely he would have had to have done Bond, James Bond. Yeah, I think the script reverses. I think he just says James, James Bond, doesn't he? And crucially, does that because of course he did know him when he was just little James Bond. He doesn't know him as Bond, James Bond. So that's kind of the point of the relationship as well. So great if they did change that, that they changed it in such a way. You're a tad late. They've sold the place when they thought you were dead. Seems they were wrong. What are you doing here? Some men are coming to kill us. We're going to kill them first. Then we'd better get ready. So let's head on over to our main feature of this week's episode. It's for your ears only, the interview segment. Who was brave enough to enter the cubbyhole this week, Phil? Well, I'm glad you asked, Martin. We were delighted to be joined recently by John Orty, who is a actor and author um, of particular stunt um, performers as well. So he's written books such as Jump, Rocky, Jump. And he also spoke about his new book, um, all about the James Bond stunts, which is Ever Heard of Evil Knievel. He was speaking also about his um, time on Twitter, on the Twitter handle Behind the Stunts. 
So without further ado, here's John to talk about his interest in the James Bond series. What was your first experience of Bond? How did you get into the movies? And is it there that your sort of more general interest in film stunts began? Yes, it is. Um, my first Bond movie that I ever saw was For Your Eyes Only. My dad had said, do you want to go to the, the movies? Which wasn't something that he'd said. Now, this was a couple of years before. It turned out that mum uh, wanted to see Greece. And so we got to the cinema. Dad said, OK, there's your tickets and I'll see you in the foyer afterwards. I'm going, well, where, where are you going? You know, I'm going in, but why am I going in with mum? He said, well, I'm going to see something else. He said, well, I'll see you here afterwards. So I went in. It's just uh, no, no shock or horror story to anybody who knows me, but I hate Greece. I hate many musicals. And we came down, we got to the foyer afterwards, and uh, I found out, and I said, what did you see? He said, oh, I went to see an old movie that they, that they were rerunning. He said, I'll go and take it to see the next one. I think you'll like it. And he went to see Live and Let Die, they were rerunning Live and Let Die. So I had to sit through Grease Lightning and uh, he sat through, you know, um, Live and Let Die. And I thought, well, that's, that's hardly fair, really. Anyway, for whatever reason, we missed Moonraker for some reason. I'm not quite sure why. We missed Moonraker. And then Fear Eyes Only was the, was the one that, uh, that came out after. And I went to see it. And on the strength of that, I was absolutely hooked. I mean, I loved it. Um, the stunts in Bond are, are just much more celebrated than those in other action films, it seems. They have their own aura. Why do you think that might be? And, and what generally would you say is the importance of those stunts to the Bond films? Yeah, I don't know whether it's... Um, the only fact they're more celebrated is because they're, they're more talked about, I think, more than anything else. Whenever there is anything that is a a stunt sequence or an action sequence, there's always Rick Sylvester skiing off a cliff, you know, because it's one of those archetypal moments. And you get B.J. Worth jumping off the off the Eiffel Tower. You get Wayne Michaels diving off the dam. You know, it's the, they are standalone moments. Um, and so they're talked about more because they may be better known than some of the terrific gags that have happened in other movies, which, of course, were inspired by those gags in the first place. So if you run the history of cinema from 1962 alongside the Bond movies, you'll see that the action is changes, they work hand in hand. Do you think that we kind of owe the, the kind of modern action that we see in the Bond films to a lot of what Bob Simmons and, and the kind of early stuntmen did? So Bob Simmons is a good example of an individual who worked not only, of course, on Bond, but on many other pictures that changed tact at that time. And often what happens is that the success of what he was doing was then influencing other pictures. And he would, uh, I mean, we, we've talked on a number of occasions uh, about his fight work and his understanding of cinema and of other departments. And of course, his early work with Cubby Broccoli um, in, with Warwick Pictures and, and the, being a relatively small unit where they were in a position to be able to intertwine. So he knew how to edit. He understood the art of editing. He understood lighting. Uh, uh, he understood wardrobe. He understood sound, camera opera, everything. So that in his head, he is working out a fight. He is editing a fight in his head, uh, uh, enabling all of those best shots to be then provided for the editor for him to say, I reckon that this would be a good opening shot here, cut to this here, then to that, and then you've got the rest here for pickups or whatever else you wanted. So he was very important in that respect. 
Uh, just earlier when you were talking and also in, in your book, uh, you refer to stunts as gags. And I just quickly wondered where that phrase uh, comes from. Do you know, is it, does it go back to the silent era or is it, is it more recent than that? Yeah, I think it comes from, I originally started in vaudeville most likely um, with the idea of, of a running gag, you know, a continued something that would happen along the way. Um, and uh, similarly with the, with, with the silent era, with the, uh, the the Keystone Cops and stuff of that nature, where they refer to gags, but they're they're known in the business as a gag. They they are stunt performers, so they are aware of what they do. But whilst they are being stunt performers, they will be required to perform a gag of some shape or form. Many actors uh, along the way have, have have struggled with the idea of being able to allow them to do their job uh, because they're not aware a stunt person will will obviously get a daily fee but they also get an addition, an adjustment for the gag. Um, so, you know, Harrison Ford's a good example of that. Tried, Vic tried to stop him from doing all the stuff that he wanted to do on the, on the Jones pictures because, you know, Vic's having to set up, for Christ's sake, this, I'm not going to get paid at the end of this. You know, I'm, uh, you know, you're taking away money from me and from some of the other boys who are, d- are doubling you as well. Uh, your book's brilliant in terms of being really comprehensive about all the sort of different stunts, big and small, uh, performed in the films. Uh, and so not necessarily looking at the major set piece moments, what are the kind of smaller stunts that, that really stand out to you the whole concept for it was of course to have an overall picture of the action and the stunts on the on the on the series on the franchise but i was kind of concerned that the amount of coverage was being covered with those bigger gags those bigger moments those standout moments that everybody loves everybody associates with bond and they're amazing and no disrespect to rick sylvester whatsoever but he skied off you know, he's fallen off two things in his career and has lived perfectly happily on that, uh, you know, since, uh, you know, he, he skied off the cliff in, in uh, Spy Who Loved Me and then fell off the other cliff on, on For Your Eyes Only on the rope, you know. What's never mentioned is, of course, the four other guys that doubled Roger leading up to him skiing off the cliff. What, what's never mentioned is those... Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, Living Daylights on Gibraltar, Bond is on top of the Landro, it's coming down and it knocks down stuntman Paul Heisman, who is stood at the bottom of this. He's playing one of the SAS officers and it knocks him down. Now, a car knockdown is always very exciting to look at. Uh, they're filmed in many different ways. They're filmed at many different speeds uh, and, and many safety precautions are taken into consideration. It's often a timing gag. There's two ways of doing it. You do it by timing where you spot the vehicle coming up and you try and clear the bonnet, the bumper, that area with your left or right leg, depending on which preference you are. And you try and clear that to get yourself either into the windscreen and then or over the top. And momentum is, is the key. Or with a trampoline, where you would maybe use a small trampette to get you up onto the roof over the back. Now, that's a conventional car or saloon car or estate or station wagon, if you're the other side of the pond. But this is a Land Rover, right? This is a Land Rover, which is a very, very different kettle of fish. And Paul, uh, he's not overly big. He's not a very, he's not particularly tall. But up to that point, had had a number of really pretty serious car knockdowns that he was maybe famous for or Paul had said oh there's a car knockdown here Paul maybe you want to do this but they'd realized 
that this was a very complicated thing to do for, for, the, for the vehicle. And so what Paul had done and what Paul Weston had worked with Paul, he said, look, you're going to have real difficulty spotting the timing on this. So what I'm going to suggest is that we attach a trampoline to the front of the vehicle. So you are on it and you can get your momentum and height and bounce up onto the top of the vehicle. Of course, they remove the tire as well. You know, take the windscreen wipers off, all those, anything that could prevent him. And all of this preparation that's taken place in order to get him on the vehicle and off the vehicle. It's a car knockdown, but it's a different type of car, different type of vehicle. So they've got to work it very differently. Uh, consequently, what they hadn't taken in consideration, which he mentions, is that um, once he left the vehicle, he was never going to go the full length of it. He was only going to come off the side just before the, the door uh, landed on the floor, disappeared through a bush and went down about 25 feet down, a, down, almost down a crevasse, you know, but he said, that's the risk you take. But he was aware that uh, there was a great deal of that going on. So there's a good example. Also, there's a terrific knockdown, again, a knockdown, I say this, but it's, it's one of these blink and you'll miss it moments in Goldeneye. Urimov says, use the bumper, that's what it's for during the tank chase over the bridge and a guy is hit by the car on the bridge goes over the top of the car over the side of the bridge and into the water and it's boom you it's a blink and you'll miss it moment but that's a wire gag there's a crane in place it's attached to him and there's a, a, a i don't think it's a rope pull i think it's a it's a, a nitrogen piston thing where he hits the thing and boom it takes him up but it has to have enough slack so it looks like he's not on a wire landing in the water that's Andy Bennett doing that it's a terrific moment nobody's ever mentioned it nobody ever says oh that guy being knocked down was wonderful and are there any sort of stunts obviously in the Bond series that you sort of look at you think well yeah that must have been so difficult to to film there's technical difficulty and there's having balls the size of melons right I mean and again you don't become a stuntman because you are brash or you are you know, you, you're, you're fearless. If you're fearless, that's probably not the business for you to be into. What, what you are is you are an athlete of a stage physically where you are capable of being able to do whatever is required of you. You've also got to act. I am reminded uh, of, of dear Bill Cummings, who, of course, played Quist uh, in Thunderball and uh, had a bit of dialogue, uh, had, a, had a scene with Connery and uh, with uh, uh, Rick Van Nutter in the, uh, in the hotel room, and then had to be thrown into a pool of sharks. So when he's thrown into that pool, I know they've done it as two takes, but when, he when he's thrown into that pool, I don't think he's acting. I genuinely think that, there is a, that there's, a, there's a genuine fear here that, yeah, I've got to do this, but... You know, and, and that's a that's a very real thing with actors and with with stunt performers. If they if they if they are aware, you know, you get the you get the adrenaline, you get the butterflies and, you know, that's always a good thing, I guess. Well, you know that when you're going to do it, you're ready for it. If you don't have any of that, you can then start having concerns because you're not maybe switched on up here enough. So that's from that point of view. The other, the, there's another moment, which of course I think is technically wonderful. And, and of course we, we talk about the late Remy Julien and his incredible work. Uh, a View to a Kill has always been, I think they worked up to, you know, they had the, the wonderful uh, Fear Eyes Only 2CV chase working up to A View to a Kill. And that whole Paris chase is beautiful. And it's beautiful because it's worked on stopwatches and flags. It's old school. They all know that they have to be split second timing. And that's what has been worked out 
back at, at Remy Julien's factory there in Cernay, and they do everything. They they a huge great land uh, stretch of runway at the back, which they can do all these testing. And there's some terrific behind the scenes footage of them during that testing period. They've got the car with Dominique at one end. They've got uh, somebody else in a truck. And then they've got a landing thing and they're, they're doing everything. These flags, stopwatches, working everything out, come in, land. It's perfect. Uh, we always have very mixed feelings when they embellish a, a really impressive stunt in the Bond films with a little bit of random comedy. So thinking about the slide whistle uh, with the corkscrew jump. How do you feel about those moments? Do they great on you? Do you, do you appreciate the humorous side of them more? The, sl- the slide whistle is a great example because the slide whistle was clearly thrown in on the basis that nobody believed it was real. You know, the gag was done once and looked just too perfect, you know? Uh, it was Cubby or Harry who said, can we just get a couple of police cars going in the water? You know, just something to make it look... And it was unbelievable and absolutely spectacular. So I think maybe they've thrown that in, you know, to to maybe lighten the mood slightly. But also, I think it takes away from the genius that that has gone into it. You know, this this whole concept of having a game that's been worked out on computer at a university it's been worked out with the top scientists and and uh bumps willard lauren willard who did the jump never done it before you know he wasn't the guy that tested it never done it before and yet steps up and um is uh some i got a somebody tweeted me the other day and said a sort of photograph of bumps willard and uh, why is he blacked up and I said, well, I wanted to clear it up on the basis that the reason he's blacked up is because he sat between two dummies is why. So uh, he's in the middle of the, he's not sat um, in the driving seat or the passenger seat. And the steering column had to be moved to the middle of the vehicle for balance. So these uh, are weightless or almost weightless dummies. And he's almost lying down in the middle of the car. I mean, it's very, very complicated. Uh, just unbelievable. I mean, I, the, the, try and put yourself in his perspective. Look at the situation and think, right, I'm sitting in this car. What can I see? Nothing. I mean, you can't see anything. I mean, it's just really, oh. And yet he nails it. It's absolutely spectacular. You know, again, we can come back to you. I, I, I keep trying not to refer to it, but Rick Sylvester skiing off that, if Rick's getting paid by the mention, but the, him skiing off that cliff and the parachute opening, the Union Jack is the big gag. That's the payoff. You know, we've had all of this and then, oh, look, he's British. You know, boom, there we are. Um, and a big audience laugh and the, the applause and the standing ovation that it got at the time. And it still does now. You know, I uh, when when Roger passed away, I went to see uh, the double bills that they had, uh, Spy Who Loved Me. And it was getting all the laughs that it got 40 plus years ago in exactly the same place. And and uh, I think that's a great stand of time. I, I really do. They're, they're, they're very well. and They appeal to a whole whole list of, of different generations you describe the mechanics of uh, the various classic fist fights in the films in, in great detail which mm. would you say stands out as a favorite bond punch-up and, and why that one particular uh ooh, that's a good one i th- well there's there's a there's a number of good ones to look i mean a thunderball and you and either twice particularly stand out because they are so driven by by simmons the most recent fight i think the trained fight inspector is marvelous I mean, really very good. Lots of elements of, of um, other movies, which they've dragged in there as well. And they've kind of upped the violent issue somewhat. They've, they've you know, 
one thing I was very aware of in From Motion and Love in that fight in the in the in the carriage was that you know the the chairs weren't or the seats weren't broken. The lights were the light got blown out, but everything else kind of stayed the same. This train that uh, Bond was on in Inspector kind of fell apart during this fight. You know, it was just unbelievable what was going on. But the 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 nature of the doubling, the doubling was very good. Um, and they they worked it where it was a very, very good fight indeed. Thunderbolt's always, because obviously Simmons is playing a character, so he's arranging the fight and he's playing a character. And so, of course, um, a good use of props, use of sets. Those sets, I suppose later on, but particularly You Only Live Twice is a good example. You don't see that set very often. It's been designed around Bob's requirements. So he has worked out a fight, transferred it to the set, working with Peter Mavia, who who worked out as as a, as a kind of arranger with with Bob Simmons for this particular fight, because obviously you have to structure the fight differently when you have somebody that big, that powerful. They've made a lot of the movements quite larger. The, the props are much larger coming through that. Uh, Petition going over the sofa, just clipping the underside of the table, the sword routine, whipping him from one from the other. And of course, um, getting him over his shoulder. You know, he ducks down and maybe has the sword in his hand. He has to get rid of it so he doesn't injure anybody when he goes over Bob's shoulder. And the pressure and the weight that Bob then has to come up with, he's crouched down. Let's say, look in the video, you see his left ankle bending under the under the strain of the whole thing. He's got to come up, he's got to throw him off. It's very, very good. I mean, I must admit, they're terrific fights. They're always very, very well done. Just in terms of opening sequences, that's where a lot of the time in Bond, the more spectacular stunt work takes place. Again, mm. which stand out to you as favourites and what are the elements of the stunt work in, in that sequence that really stand out to you as being particularly impressive? The pre-title is a, is a, is a huge point of any film uh, uh john glenn said that you know he, uh, when he did living daylights he has four minutes to convince the world that uh, timothy dalton is james bond and that's it in a in a in a nutshell goldeneye does stand out the film going public were more hungry for it because they hadn't had one for ages and martin campbell to, to say well we're going to give them one hell of a ride in the pre-title there are many aspects of that pre-title. I think uh, uh, altogether, and you look at the, the way it's worked, you've got the damn jump for a start, which is, you know, Wayne's a wonderful double for Pierce. So he's he's been involved in that. And of course, his, you know, his positioning and everything about it, timing-wise, his positioning is wonderful. As soon as that rope starts to tension up and he starts to get the, the whiplash, he's got to go for the gun. He's got to get into that position and then disappear behind the rock. I mean, it's that crucial moments of time. It's brilliant. Then, of course, you've got, the, the, the fight in the, the whole gun battle inside the whole thing, all those stunt guys coming down the stairs. It's a very small stunt team on GoldenEye as well. So Paul Heisman got killed. I think he shot himself twice. Um, you know, there's a, a number of occasions where uh, there's uh, <laughs> the same guys falling over again. And then, of course, you've got the outside stuff, which, of course, is the back lot there of, of Leavesden. Um, Eddie Kidd on the motorcycle for, for Pierce going after the plane, heading towards the cardboard mountains. Um, and um, and then, of course, you've got BJ and you've got Mal Zutnaria who going off the off the, the cliff. And all There's so many elements which make it. And still now, you know, when, when that plane disappears out of sight, 
and then comes up at the last moment and then you get the explosion and you get the dum 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 and the hairs on the back of my neck go oh that was you know you know something good's happening it's a it's a great moment golden i must admit so i i'm very excited by by that pre-title particularly so that was john orty a fountain of knowledge on everything stunt related uh, I really enjoy his, uh, well, he had some great stories for us there, uh, but he also has some great stories on his own podcast and uh, YouTube videos as well. So do check those out, uh, as well as his upcoming book, Ever Heard of Evil Knievel, which is out uh, April 2021. Um, I think he's so good at breaking down the stunts, isn't he, into the component parts, and it really gives you a greater appreciation of uh, how difficult and dangerous some of these stunts can be. Yeah, he was particularly good, and his book is great for this as well. At just all the little stunts that you you see on screen, and you never think twice about them. But the amount of effort and you know attention to detail that goes into them. Oh yeah, I did like the story about uh, the Rock's granddad as well. That's a really great scene in You Only Live Twice. Interesting that that the Rock's granddad didn't have much screen experience, so a kind of extra danger to that scene. <sighs> Cheers. Siamese vodka. So next up is the 007 best segment where we compile a list of our seven favorites in any given Bond category. And this week, it's going to be the 007 best gadgets of the Bond franchise. So there was quite a lot of variation, actually, in our individual lists, probably because there are so many gadgets and so many different criteria that you could use for judging them. Uh, but we've totted up the scores, and this is our combined cubbyhole list for the gadgets, starting with... Number seven. In at number seven, just making the list, the Moonraker laser gun. So this one, I think I put this one pretty high on my list, which is why it just creeps onto the, the cubbyhole list. Um, I think the criteria that I was using for this one is simply it's destructive power. We can see the scene where it's me melting the face off of one of Q's test dummies. Uh, and it's basically the same as the, the space gun in Star Wars, isn't it? And uh, as we've said before on the podcast, if Bond was equipped with this weapon in any of the other stories, then... I mean, all of the other films would be finished in the first five minutes, wouldn't they, as, as Bond melts the face of his evil opponent. It also begs the question, why on earth didn't Goldfinger use one of those on his, uh, you know, supposed dinner guests that he'd got bored with? Because that would have been a much quicker way to get the information out of them if you just had a, a handheld laser rather than the massive one that was kind of in his warehouse. Yeah, I'll be honest, I actually completely forgot this gadget existed when I was compiling my list, so it never even made it on to, to my kind of thinking. I can't quite believe that you did forget about this gadget, Phil, because we did mention it pretty much every episode of Series 1 from Moonraker onwards, just on Martin's point. It is so bizarre that Q has invented a laser gun and yet it never crops up again or is mentioned again. It's also impressive that Q seems to have invented and mass-produced this from a makeshift Amazon base, which makes me think perhaps they didn't get the whole idea from Goldfinger's laser gun. Maybe some Trappist monks in the middle of the Amazon have had a, an invention of a laser gun for like centuries and centuries. And that's why no one ever finds the lost city of El Dorado, because these monks just shoot them with a laser gun before they can get close enough. I think you've stolen one of Phil's future crazy theories there, Adam. <laughs> it's also, I think, um, strange, but also important that Bond himself never uses the laser gun, I think. And um, that would be, we talked about, you know, Albert R. Broccoli saying this film is science fact. 
and it isn't. And yet they are sort of making some effort to keep it on just the right side of science fiction, despite everything that's going on. And I do think that Roger Moore melting Hugo Drax's face with a laser gun probably would have been that one step way too far into outright silliness, wouldn't it? Again, I'd just like to see there's an outtake somewhere where they did give it a go and it just looks so stupid that they couldn't put it in in the end. Number six. So in at number six, we have the Phillips keychain from The Living Daylights. Um, personally, I thought this was one of the, the all-time great gadgets and I'm, I'm delighted to see it in our top six. Yeah, I like how we, we actually see the gadget being used to quite good effect. It doesn't feel like they've shoehorned in the action just for specifically that gadget. It does feel like a natural usage uh, when he uses the stun gas and then, of course, does the, the wolf whistle for the explosion to take out Cho Don Baker. Um, but uh, I had it on my list because I quite like the fact that it, the keys of the keychain open 90% of the world's locks. I mean, that, that alone, it deserves the place on the list. I like that it's sort of the slight, the first slightly more high-tech gadget we get in Bond. You know, before this, they were very analogue, whereas this feels like the first gadget of the digital age. And it's interesting that Dalton gets it, because the Dalton films are still fairly gadget-laden, which, looking back now, is quite interesting, because we've talked about how his much more realistic uh, portrayal of Bond and much more hard-edged uh, performance kind of anticipates Daniel Craig. But he also, to an extent, anticipates Pierce Brosnan, who is an action man very much, but who is still very adept at handling these sort of technologically advanced gadgetry and the hardware. To be honest, I was still trying to work out which 10% of the world's locks that key doesn't open, because I'd be more intrigued to see which ones it didn't open. Presumably the ones in Q's house. There are humorous elements, obviously, when Bond whistles into it to, to show Cara where he is in, at the opera house at the end. The wolf whistle is interesting. I mean, if it had been Roger Moore's Bond, there's, there's plenty of sexual harassment in Q's workshop. He could have just walked in and done the wolf whistle and blown someone up by accident. Well, it is problematic, isn't it? Because this is the 1980s and Dalton is a very attractive man. You know, it, it only takes one sort of, you know, 80s forward female getting a bit feisty with him and just, you know, launching a wolf whistle in his direction. And then his arse has been blown off. Number five. And in at number five, it's the Ericsson mobile phone from Tomorrow Never Dies. Why on earth have you both voted for this? It's just a rubbish Stone Age mobile phone. I mean, it, the phone itself is rubbish. It's just a conduit to the much better thing that's going on. Why, why have you put this in the list? Yeah, Coach points out we did make an agreement before we came up with this list that we weren't going to include any vehicles of any kind. So that's the reason why the BMW doesn't feature in the list. Let's not forget, this is a great use of kind of, at the time, current technology, because, you know, mobile phones are having a bit of a renaissance at this point. We'd gone beyond the kind of 80s rocks that you had to carry around with its own car battery. We're now into, you know, the, the era of kind of personal mobile phones that people can actually use. This is a great moment of progressive kind of technology in a Bond film. Yeah, I'm entirely with you, Phil, but you've forgotten the most important role that this phone has is that it also takes down the great Dr. Kaufman. So any gadget that can do that certainly deserves a place on the list. It is obviously by modern standards, it's not a great phone, uh, but I think it works in in that time and that place. It, the multifunction of everything that it's got, the scanner, the electric shock, the keypad for the BMW, I think it really works quite nicely. And I mean, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that maybe Apple or Samsung in the future might want to have a, a sponsorship deal with uh, with the Bond franchise. And I just don't think Bond would look as good just clicking some apps 
So I think the the old style phone works quite well. Well, you are right. It is interesting that there is a phone gadget and there has not been really a phone gadget since because phones have just become everyday gadgets. Presumably, this is why Q retires in the very next film, isn't it? Because he has just invented the smartphone. So presumably he did just sell the blueprints to Apple and then he's just retiring off the profits after that. Well, I think Elon Musk also owes him a debt of gratitude because he's technically invented the world's first self-driving car as well. Elon needs to sponsor this podcast. He's getting so many mentions. Yeah, and he's good for it, isn't he? I think the big camera in the phone's a bit of a missed opportunity, isn't it? I mean, Bond could have just used that at various points in the film to check back in on what Q's doing in the workshop or, you know, what's happening on Money Penny's desk or, uh, you know, anything like that. Penny, I remembered uh, I just left some pork chops in the freezer. Can you go and defrost them for when I'm home? Welcome. Please fasten seatbelt and obey all instructions for a safe trip. Thought you'd pay more attention to a female voice. I think we've met. I am not interested in your sordid escapades. Let's get on with it, shall we? Your new telephone. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. <laughs> and in at number four is the Thunderball Jetpack. So this gadget features very briefly in the pre-title sequence of Thunderball uh, when Bond is fleeing after taking out uh, Colonel Bouvard at his own fake funeral service and uh, despite its short appearance it certainly lives long in the memory bond gadgets are uh, all about being futuristic and back in 1965 at least i'm sure this was uh, seen as the pinnacle of technology maybe even a future realistic transportation device so yeah this gadget even more amazing because it was built for real as well there's plenty of uh, videos online it was the technical name was the rocket belt uh, it was called powered by hydrogen peroxide I mean, never mind that in reality it would be hideously impractical and in the film it doesn't make a lot of sense either because he would have had to spend a lot of time getting it up on the rooftop. But nevertheless, really, really memorable gadget. I actually have a bit of a controversial opinion of the jetpack. Although it was a real device, it has since been redesigned and, and redeveloped for modern audiences. I actually think this is one of the most stupid gadgets that Bond ever uses in the entire franchise. I mean, the fact they have to cut away from the scene where he's putting it on, because you assume it probably took about four blokes to get it on him, and then he magically just happens to be wearing it as, as he's about to leave the rooftop. I mean, you're absolutely right. It is ridiculous, but that's why it's so good. This is the moment where Bond goes truly gigantic and bonkers in one opening sequence. And I love the Thunderball opening sequence, but particularly because it's come after one of the best and most intense fights of the series, which, again, we've just heard John Orty talk about when it's Connery versus Bob Simmons himself as Jacques Bouvard uh, going full Keith Moon on that uh, mansion uh, drawing room while Peter Hunt's editing is on absolute steroids. It's a great opening sequence because it encapsulates Thunderball. It's saying we're going to do classic from Russia with love, intense bond that you love, but we're marrying it back up to the bonkersness that you saw in Goldfinger and we're going to go even further than Goldfinger and the jetpack is the thing that absolutely sells that. There is the wider point, of course, of how he got that jetpack up there waiting for him. I mean, presumably he just flew it up beforehand, which does beg the question, how did nobody see him doing that? Yeah, it's not like it even takes him very far either. It's, I, mean, you know, I guess it would be quite boring if we just had him in a jetpack for 20 minutes at the start of the film, but it doesn't take him very far. It would, however, have jazzed up all the Bahamas searching for the downed uh, uh, jet sequences if he wasn't in that chopper with Rick Van Nutter. He was just flying over the reef in a jetpack. 
think it could have been reused as well. What what if we'd have had the jetpack in the world is not enough in that opening sequence? If Bond had just jetted his way across the River Thames, it would have been much quicker to chase the the escaping henchwoman, wouldn't it? It wouldn't have had to have messed about with Q's boat. Number three. In uh, number three, we have the attache case from from Russia with love. Perhaps the most real-world gadget that Bond ever has, arguably. Um, obviously, a lot of different devices that are stored away in the case, and obviously these come to fruition when Bond has to defeat Red Grant in the um, in the iconic train sequence. It's a classic gadget because it's so extremely believable. I mean, apart from the, the sort of tear gas bomb, it's just things that are practical hidden in the linings of it. So, you know, and indeed, I think Desmond Llewellyn used to always take this case with him when he did appearances at fan conventions. So it, it existed in real life for quite a long time. I'm sure Connery probably wanted to use it to smuggle some coins through customs. Yeah, I think I really love the attache case, of course, it's part of the sequence that we spoke about in our previous episode kind of multifunctional and realistic uh, which is why i enjoy it and i think as we mentioned in our previous episode q gives the case to bond at the start of the film and then there's enough time passes uh, that we kind of forget about it uh, which in, in my opinion is a bit better isn't it? it's kind of annoying when q gives Bond a gadget and then he has to it's completely necessary in the next 10 minutes of the film. Yeah and when it's used everything in it is used as well I mean pretty much everything that is in the case is used in that final fight sequence so yeah it's a great little bit of storytelling with it. I also love that line that Wes Q gives it to him and Connery says oh, we'll have to have it in the shops for Christmas. Is that a kind of um, fourth wall breaking joke in that this is sort of the first Bond film which went in for the merchandising a little bit more? So is that Connery just literally saying and you can go out and buy this yourselves. Number two. And at number two, just missing the top spot, we have the Rolex Submariner from Live and Let Die. Uh, this is, I mean, there are tons of watch gadgets in Bond, and this, I think, is a very clear favourite. It has a great setup and payoff, because at first we think it's just a bit of a Mickey take. I mean, Q is absent in this film unusually and doesn't even give it to Bond himself. And we think that it's just going to be used for that sheer magnetism joke. And then, of course, we forget it. And when it does come back, it fails him because it can't bring the boat to him when he's trapped at the alligator farm. And yet both the magnet and the buzzsaw, which we'd completely forgotten about, come way back at the very last scene, much like the attache case in From Russia With Love. And both of them pay off beautifully when it does. Yeah, I agree, Adam. This is just one of those great Bond gadgets that kind of fans always remember and always come back to. I believe they may have marketed it as as a, a product that children could buy at the time. You know, again, Bond is kind of reliant on what it can do. And although it fails him at the at the alligator farm, he, he knows it's capable of doing much more. And it's interesting because of the fact of the audience doesn't have to have the usual explanation from Q to say, you know, this is what it does. It's kind of Bond and the audience are, are left to rely upon their own knowledge, the fact that they, they could understand that this could work in the real world. So, you know, obviously the dial becomes a circular saw and cuts through the rope. Children could buy it, Phil. I mean, <laughs> thank goodness it wasn't marketed with the actual special features. I mean, that would cause a lot of accidents in the home, wouldn't it? Yeah, I know. And which children exactly are buying a Rolex? Uh, but yeah, an incredible watch. Looks amazing. And two very different encounters, of course, one with voluptuous uh, Miss Caruso at the start and one with Dr. Kanenga at the end. Uh, so I think it's good that uh, Bond is able to handle those situations, use both of the, uh, the functions of the watch. Uh, it's just good that he didn't uh, mix up the functions and slice Madeline Smith's back and, uh, and get stuck to the metal gantry even more at the end. 
Yeah, we we did muse on that, but him accidentally the, the magnet at the, the end. It seems to pull this bullet, and yet it doesn't attach him steadfast to this big metal gantry that he's on. I also wondered about him accidentally setting it off at other points throughout the film. You know, when he's in the Harlem fillet of soul, and it's all very tense because he's a white man in a very black world. If he just accidentally set the magnet off, and a lot of forks just start flying through the air just to make it even worse. Or when Rosie Carver's in the hotel room in the, the Caribbean, if he just activates the buzzsaw and sends all the feathers out of the pillow and it just makes her even more hysterical. Number one. So in at number one, the top spot was the Goldeneye Parker Pen, the modern classic, the class four grenade hidden inside an ordinary looking piece of stationery. Uh, the pen, of course, is mightier than the sword, thanks to Q. And uh, I just feel sorry for Fred the Mannequin in that scene in Goldeneye demonstrates the pen's destructive power but yeah a really really good gadget i love how it's used in the film with uh, with boris's character i'm wondering how many of these pens that q actually manufactured does he have a whole box of them i mean obviously they're just a one-time use yeah i've got great visions of just that's mi6's kind of standard issue pen and there's just loads of people just have them on their desks so they accidentally click it three times and loads of people's desks just explode I also find it a little bit ridiculous that uh, that Boris needed to use the pen at all because why he needs to just type with one and then click with the pen in his right hand never really made sense. Yeah, I mean, the scene where it's used is absolutely magnificent, isn't it? The way that those clicks create tension, the way that Brosnan's flinching and Alan Cummings is increasingly frantic sort of typing and clicking, um, you know, set up that scene is brilliant. And actually, Eric Serra's music isn't too bad. It just sort of, there's a hum that slowly builds in the background. But I also love that it's kind of an analogue gadget in quite a high-tech film. Bond and Q are very much the old-fashioned, out-of-date fuddy-duddies in GoldenEye. And it's not a very high-tech gadget. It's just a pen that blows up. And yet that's the thing that ultimately saves Bond's life and brings down the whole villainous scheme. Of course, when you think about it, the problem with it is it's useless as a pen. I mean, you can click it once to start writing. That's absolutely fine. You then have to click it five times to stop writing with it and make sure that you've diffused the bomb as well. Yeah, again, this is maybe one of the flaws of the uh, the Bond gadget world is the fact that what if... Bond just forgets that it's not a pen and just, you know, goes to sign a check or something like that. And then, you know, half of the MI6's branch explodes. That's, that's always the risk you take, I think. But I love the unintentional, I presume, unintentional comedy that when Q is demonstrating it, that he clicks it three times and it's much longer than four seconds. It's four seconds in Q world, isn't it? It's four seconds, but four seconds that give Desmond Llewellyn, who at this point was about 84, enough time to run away from it. They all said the pen was mightier than the sword. Thanks to me, they were right. Look, let's ask Fred here to demonstrate for us. Here we are. Sorry about this, Fred. One, two, three. Don't say it. The writing's on the wall. So it's on to our next segment, the James Bond Film Club. What film are you reviewing this week, Adam? Thanks very much. This week, it's Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. So made in 1997, directed by Jay Roach and written by and starring Mike Myers, who is a huge Anglophile. And this is very much his tribute to 60s Britain, to James Bond, and also to an old sort of TV spoof spy series called Jason King. Uh, it was a sleeper hit in its day, but spawned two absolutely massive sequels, which both parodied Bond titles, The Spy Who Shagged Me and Goldmember. So it's now pretty much seen as the number 
number one Bond spoof film. Indeed, Daniel Craig has said that the serious tone of his Bond films are a response to the Austin Powers movies. He said it made it absolutely impossible to go for camp and comedy in Bond anymore. So the plot is Austin Powers in 1967 is a dandyish super spy and photographer who agrees to be frozen when his arch enemy Dr. Evil escapes to outer space. Cut 30 years later to 1997 when Dr. Evil returns and Austin Powers is thawed and he's paired with Elizabeth Hurley's Miss Kensington to stop Dr. Evil holding the world to ransom with a nuclear weapon he's stolen. So, so far, so Thunderball. However, the real thing is that Austin Powers must now come to terms with the fact that he is a walking anachronism. His whole personality and attitudes and behaviour and his sort of swinging, groovy life philosophy are completely outdated. So the great thing about this film in terms of Bond is it's only half a direct parody of Bond. Austin Powers himself is more of a general spoof of the psychedelic swinging 60s and its culture. I mean, Austin Powers, as played by Myers, is very much Michael Caine meets David Hemmings meets David Bailey. But he has his cake and eats it because he lovingly embraces the comic excesses of that free love generation whilst attacking the fact that it is now outdated. But he still celebrates the rebellious spirit of it. Of course, the big Bond parody comes in the villains. Dr. Evil is Blofeld to such an extent that you probably could never cast a bold Blofeld with a scar down his face again. Number two, played by Robert Wagner, is 100% Emilio Largo. Frau Farbissima is Rosa Klebb. We've even got an odd job spoof in there called Random Task, who doesn't throw his bowler hat, but throws his shoe at things. Uh, there are so many small gags that the Bond fans will do, react to. Even Lois Charles, Dr. Goodhead herself, has a cameo appearance as the wife of a henchman who is killed. The film has a great running joke where when a henchman's killed, it cuts to a scene of their loving family members hearing the news. And also, Burt Bacharach makes an appearance, and indeed his song, The Look of Love, from the Casino Royale spoof from 1967, plays over um, the sequence where Austin Powers is trying to seduce a lot of vagina. Yeah, that's the name of the character in her penthouse. And that's kind of the point, really, is that this is Casino Royale, the spoof done right. The gags and all the comedy sequences are absolutely hilarious. And it's spoofing 60s culture from an ironic distance. Thanks a lot, Adam. So Austin Powers, yeah, still the king of Bond spoofs. And uh, I guess it kind of loses its punch, doesn't it? Especially by the, the, the third film, I think maybe a bit feels a bit outdated, doesn't it? Certainly not as good as the, the first two. Uh, but it's interesting that Mike Myers, I think his, I think his parents were from Liverpool immigrants to, to Canada. Uh, so it's interesting that he does have that British connection, uh, but being Canadian, it gives him that outside perspective, doesn't it? To really look at the absurdities of the, the Bond franchise, which we try to do, but uh, I guess it's even easier if you're, if you're not British. Yeah, Mike Myers' dad in particular was a huge fan and introduced Myers when he was young to all of these sort of great 60s stalwarts. I mean, there's also, I mean, with Elizabeth Hurley's character, she's kind of Diana Rigg as well. Uh, perhaps not as Tracy, but certainly as Emma Peel in The Avengers. She's in this sort of tight black catsuit for a lot of the finale. So he's incredibly au fait with all of those references. They're dead on. So it's from a really great heartfelt place, this, which is why I... I think it's so affectionate and so charming. I personally, this is also my, my it's probably his finest hour, really. Also, you look at his kind of comedy work that he did before going into films, you know, with Saturday Night Live and things like that. This is this is just such a brilliant parody. It's just the attention to detail with all those lines and all the gags that are in it are just so brilliantly done. Yeah, and so much of it's just become part of parlance now, isn't it? When you think of Blofeld, you don't weirdly think of a Bond Blofeld. You think of Mike Myers as Dr. Evil. <laughs> 
I can be hip. I can be cool. Yeah, and things like Basil Exposition, Michael York's sort of M character, who is called Basil Exposition because he just comes on to explain the plot. Everyone uses that now for when there's a moment in the film when a character just explains the plot. Oh, it's the Basil Exposition moment. But yeah, it's a great film. All the great bits you remember are still funny. Definitely worth a rewatch, I think, if you haven't seen it for a while. <laughs> Allow myself to introduce myself. My name is Richie Cunningham, and this is my wife, Oprah. My name is number two. This is my Italian confidential secretary. Her name is Alata. Alata for China. Come again. So it's over to Phil. A semi-victory last week, Phil. Adam agreed with you about the, the fever dream. Might be the only way to explain how bad Die Another Day is. Although I personally still blame Lee Tamahori. But uh, what wacky theory do you have this time? This week, I thought we'd go back a little bit further. Um, of course, A View to a Kill, 1985's swan song for Roger Moore, is one of the more divisive of the Bond films. It's kind of a Marmite film for many fans. You either love it or hate it, really. However, one of the more ridiculous moments I always find in the film is the fact that Bond has to resort to overambitious aliases, particularly James St. John Smythe, this sort of upper-class twit of a, of a man who's meant to have an expert knowledge of, of horses and horse racing, who is then introduced to Max Zorin alongside his trusty chauffeur, Sir Godfrey Tibbet. We also get, uh, later in the film, when he's introduced to Stacey Sutton, he then becomes James Stock, perhaps the least inventive alias ever made because he's supposedly a writer for the Financial Times. This got me thinking this week because surely they can't be the only aliases that have been used in the Bond franchise. I think that there are many characters that are actually reappearing throughout the films but are actually either double agents or that have basically got new aliases to hide their identities. We don't know the backstory for Sharon the Tea Lady, for example. Could she be a double agent who has just got another alias? We don't know the backstory for Penelope Smallbone either. You know, the, these are questions that never get answered. You know, it's, it's... I mean, I'll tell you why these questions are never answered, Phil. It's because they're never asked, <laughs> except by you. <laughs> I mean, this, you this mentioned that there are some ridiculous names. I mean, what are your thoughts there, therefore on Pussy Galore? You said that they have to have, have code names because they're so ridiculous. Well, what about that one? Do you not think that sort of undermines the fact that they're spies, the fact that they've come up with such ridiculous names that everyone instantly remembers who they are all the time? Yes, but let's not forget, in Diamonds Are Forever, Bond is supposedly the most well-known spy, so he has to change his name to Peter Franks, the, the jewellery dealer, and yet nobody no, seems that's not to... Why, that's, not, that's not why he does it. He does it because he needs to infiltrate the smuggling chain, and they know Franks is the next guy in it. He's not hiding the fact that he's Bond. He's specifically becoming the person he needs to to get into the criminal fraternity. So, so who do you think Penelope Smallbone, or Smallbush, if you're Lois Maxwell, really is? Well, this is the question. Is There must be infiltrators in MI6, because we see it in Quantum of Solace. There is, I forget the agent's name, but there is... NMI6 agent who is actually working for the enemies in that film. She can't be a very good one then because she's literally in that one scene and then is never heard from again. So presumably Moneypenny just outed her straight away, being Moneypenny and awesome. Maybe she did. That's again, we just don't know. This is the thing. It's because we don't know the character arcs. Maybe she just gets outed. You've been feeling quite paranoid of late, Phil, because this is quite a paranoid theory, isn't it? That no one in any Bond film is actually who they say they are. 
wouldn't say it's paranoia. I just think it's, you know, it's... You're questioning the identity of Sharon the Tea Lady, Phil. I'd say that's that's quite paranoid. <laughs> What's a real name? A Russian name, perhaps. Sharapova the Tea Lady. Also, you, you know that Pussy Galore's real name isn't obviously Pussy Galore. It's, it's Anna Blackman. She's played by an actress in the film. Everyone in these films, in fact, they're, they're actors. They're pretending. They're pretending on the day in that way. And how, do, and how do they know what to say? The words are written down for them in a script. How do they know where to stand? People told them. <laughs> was that just a, a mental theory, Adam. I don't believe it. <laughs> was that just an excuse for you to do a Serene McKellen impression? Yeah, a little bit. But yes, it's just the idea that, you know, maybe there are multiple characters using different aliases to get to more disloyal means. Okay, thanks a lot, Phil, for that theory. Do get in touch with the show if you agree with that. Or don't bother if you disagree. Obviously, don't bother getting in touch. Mr. St. John Smith. St. John Smith, my dear. So on to the next segment, which is Delve Deeply. So this week, we're going to delve into Jamaica, the birthplace of the James Bond character created by Ian Fleming at his 15-acre Goldeneye estate near Oracabessa on the northern coastline of Jamaica. Fleming designed the estate himself as he was looking for the perfect retreat to help with his writer's block, which he famously suffered from, and it seemed to work. He wrote all of the 13 Bond novels in his bedroom at Goldeneye, and of course Dr. No, Live and Let Die, and The Man with the Golden Gun were all set, or partly set, in Jamaica. And the estate has uh, quite a rich history of famous visitors. Uh, then Prime Minister of uh, the UK, Sir Anthony Eden, stayed there with his wife in the 1950s. A bit of rest and relaxation needed after the uh, Suez crisis. Bob Marley purchased the estate in 1976 before he sold it to Chris Blackwell, the, the record producer. And Sting wrote his hit, Every Breath You Take, while holidaying there in the 1980s. And of course, the GoldenEye song was dreamt up by Bono in the 1990s while he was stopping at GoldenEye. So uh, the estate still exists, but as a luxury resort, the original buildings from Fleming's time still stand, uh, but many private villas or beach huts as they're labeled on the, the GoldenEye website have been added, making the site well over 52 acres now. Uh, but the luxury resort comes with a luxury price tag Rooms currently range from 700 to 4,000 US dollars a night. The beach below GoldenEye is aptly named the James Bond beach, but the scenes we actually see in Dr. No on the fictional Crab Key were actually filmed on Laughing Waters Beach, which is a privately owned beach by the Jamaican government, and you have to gain some permission to, uh, to actually visit, uh, or you can book it for larger groups for, for around a thousand American dollars. Also, there's the, the Duns River Falls, where we see Bond, Honey, and Quarrel bathing. That one's slightly easier for tourists to visit, uh, and you can climb the 180 foot uh, waterfall quite difficult to tourists usually link arms and uh, make their way up slowly across the other slippery stones and for some live and let die action which uh, i'm always keen on uh, you'll want to head to gunpoint wharf in montego bay that's where bond hires coral jr and uh, also in that bay uh, you can stay at the the half moon luxury resort where bond and rosie carver spend the night uh, it was cottage number 10, if you want to ask for that one specifically. And about one hour's drive from there, if you go to Falmouth, you can visit the Swamp Safari, where Sir Rog, of course, 
uses the crocs as the stepping stones. Uh, you'll still see the trespassers will be eaten sign. Uh, that's still on the gate, on the front gate. And the safari is still a sanctuary for crocodiles as well as owls, snakes, and iguanas uh, with the rebuilt Kananga house opposite. Of course, I think they accidentally burnt too much of the uh, original structure and it had to be uh, remade uh, after they did the filming. And uh, if you rented a car, which you almost certainly will have to do if you visit Jamaica, uh, you may want to find the road from Johnson Town to Lucia. Uh, that's where the double-decker bus chase was filmed, uh, although you won't find the, the bridge. That was an artificial bridge that they placed there just for the, uh, the film. So you won't be able to see that, but you, you can drive down the same road. Still looks pretty much the same. And so, yeah, I think that's pretty much uh, everything that I had for Jamaica. Of course, there's the hotel that uh, Baron Samadhi performs his freaky voodoo act. Uh, that one is the uh, the couple's Sens Suchi Hotel in Ocarias. But uh, lots, of, uh, lots of different places in Jamaica, rich history with the Bond franchise. And apparently it will be returning in No Time to Die as well. Some of the scenes were filmed in Port Antonio. Thanks for that. I've always loved to go to Jamaica. So yeah, maybe I'll save up and uh, stay at Goldeneye, probably in one of the cheaper uh, suites, uh, listening to all that back. I wonder if you do stay in the uh, the cabin that Bond and Rosie Carver stayed in, whether Earl Jolly Brown still comes in to serve you champagne, if you can hear him, if you really listen out for him. Well, he's not, a starship. Not... He's not a starship captain, Adam, so uh, <laughs> he might be working there. In retrospect, yes, that was a daft answer to plump for, wasn't it? Your champagne, sir. What was that? Your champagne. Put it on the table, thanks. Shall I open it? What? Shall I open it? So next up is Q branch. The questions branch. What questions did we have this week, Phil? Answer my questions quietly, but clearly. I thought I'd kick us off this week with one that came in from Pat Martimucci on Facebook. So he was asking us, he always loves um, in movies when he's watching in the background and there's always sort of a gaffe or a, a mistake that, that always makes it into the continuity. He wants to know from us guys, are there any kind of Bond or non-Bond films that we can remember where there have been sort of notable gaffes or mistakes? There's the guy who exposes himself in Teen Wolf. I mean, in, in terms of the Bond series, I'd say obviously the biggest mistake is the uh, the car switching sides down the alleyway in Diamonds Are Forever. Uh, that is ridiculous. And I feel like the film has lots of comedy and I feel like uh, I can I can let it slide. By that time, Mr. Winter, Mr. Kid have uh, entertained us enough. Actually, one of them, I, I did a little bit of research on this one and uh, I found that there was one that I hadn't spotted that I found quite amusing is in License to Kill uh, when Bond gives the lighter to Felix Leiter on his wedding day, uh, you can actually see the uh, the gas tube going through his wedding suit sleeve into the lighter as he uh, as he uses it as the, the massive flame comes out. Uh, so I thought that was quite a funny one. Yeah, I, was, I think one of my all time favourites is in Doctor No, where it's the uh, the patrol boat where the um, the sound band clearly forgot to take him off loud when he when he brings his megaphone down and he's still shouting at full volume so it's it's always a great little moment in the film for me I, I i have a good one from diamonds are forever as well in the opening sequence when that guy says cairo without moving his lips sandor doesn't make that kind of mistake pyramids loud and clear which pyramids though he doesn't specify which pyramids imagine if there'd been like loads of pyramid resorts and then roger moore's just already chopped him off the roof oh maybe i should have checked which pyramids 
Okay, so moving on, we also were contacted on Facebook um, by someone who wants, did want to remain anonymous, but they're asking us about um, sort of Bond actor cameos in other films um, and whether we've noticed sort of um, the largest number of cameos. Um, the person was actually watching Ronin recently, the uh, 1998 thriller starring John Reno and Robert De Niro, which also features Sean Bean, Jonathan Price, and Michael Lonsdale all in key roles. I don't think if Robert De Niro hears this, he's going to be very flattered you put his name after Jean Reno's film. <laughs> yeah, I've been thinking about this all day. I tend to, films-wise, I bottom out at four. So there are so, there are a few films which have four Bond alumni actors in, most notably Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, which is, of course, Sean Connery, James Bond. Julian Glover is the villain who was Christatos in For Your Eyes Only. Uh, Alison Doody, uh, Phil's favourite, Jenny Flex, she's in there as uh, the leading heroine. And then John Reese davies uh, Pushkin is Salah as well. I can't think of many films that have five in, or I haven't got one yet. Game of Thrones, the TV series, has five. That has Sean Bean, Diana Rigg, Julian Glover again, Charles Dance, who, of course, makes his debut in For Your Eyes Only, and um, Jonathan Price as the uh, the Grand High Sparrow as well. I think we should maybe open this out to the audience. If, if there are people out there who know of any films or TV series that have maybe got more Bond alumni in them, then please let us know. Better Make That too. actually had kind of a similar question. They wanted to know um, if we'd have wanted to see kind of George Lazenby or Tim Dalton do more films. Would you guys have wanted to see both those actors kind of go on and do more with the role? Or do you think it was best that they kept to their single and uh, twin films respectively? Personally, I would have liked to see Dalton's, the third film that never happened. I really wanted to uh, to see that one. Uh, as for Lazenby, I'm not, I do like Honor Majesty's Secret Service, but I'm not sure how he could have improved after that to be honest and i don't i don't know how much scope there was for him to improve much as a as an actor i know that sounds harsh uh, but yeah i would i would like to see dalton more but maybe not lazenby yeah i agree actually i think there's something weirdly perfect about lazenby having done one and it having been so brilliant and so good like had you brought him back even if you then brought peter hunt back to direct again I'm just not sure how good it would have been, whether it might even have, have sort of tarnished Honor Majesties a little bit because it was so powerful by being so singular. I wonder also what A View to a Kill might have been like with Dolan. Had more done what he anticipated and retired after Octopussy, um, you'd probably then, I suspect, have made The Living Daylights immediately after as probably Dalton's first Bond film. Then I don't know. Would you have would you have done a view to a kill differently, but with Dalton and actually taking it seriously, Dalton versus Walken, you know, that would have been quite fascinating. I know that'll be controversial to Phil because he loves a view to a kill. Yeah, I actually think it would have been quite refreshing to see Timothy Dalton in um, a view to a kill. My only concern is obviously the campy kind of nature of it. It probably wouldn't have really matched his tone, so you probably would have had to have have written the film in a much more um, sort of serious tone which perhaps wouldn't have sat as, as well really so I think it was probably history was um, you know kind to both actors in that sense you know and I think that Dalton probably deserved more films but you know the ones that we're left with are kind of masterpieces when you consider his he only really had two shots at, at being Bond. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! Okay, so that brings us to the final segment of today's show, which is the quiz. And it's my turn to be the quiz master for this week. So unfortunately, I'm going to 
lag even further behind in the uh, the Cubby Cup. Uh, but uh, let's let's move to the quiz now. So uh, Phil's crazy theory about Jaws being a cyborg, of uh, some description, uh, got me thinking about where do the Bond characters actually come from? Uh, so this week, you're going to be guessing the nationality of some of the franchise's beloved and indeed villainous characters. Four questions each, hopefully getting progressively harder. And to get the point, you'll need to tell me the, the film that they star in, that should be the, the easy part, and also the nationality of the character. And in the case of a dual nationality, I'll accept either country. Okay, so I think we started with Adam last time. So uh, Phil, we'll start with you. Your first one will ease you in gently. Odd job. Uh, so that's Goldfinger, and he's, is he South Korean? I'll accept that, Phil. He was, uh, it says Korean. It's not specified South Korea, but uh, yeah, I'll give you the point for that one. Over to you, Adam. Fiona Volpe. Uh, Thunderball and presumably Italian. That is correct. Well done. So one apiece. Round two. Phil, you have Dr. Julius No. Oh, well, he was technically dual nationality. So he's obviously Dr. No is the film, but I'm going to say, wasn't he Chinese American or something like that? Or Chinese, certainly. He was Chinese German, so I'll give you the point there, Phil. You did get one of the the countries Chinese. Well done. Over to you, Adam. Hugo Drax. Ah, this is this is tricky, actually. Well, Moonraker is the film. I think he's American. That is correct. Well done. Could it be a bit tricky because he he does the accent, doesn't he? It makes you think that he's French. Well, Michael Lonsdale's French, and in the book he's British, so you, you you're all over the place. But yeah, yeah, I thought I had that. So full mark so far, two apiece. On to round number three. Over to you, Phil. Electra King. Well, it's the world is not enough. I'm going to say French. Oh, it's a slip up from Phil. Adam, do you know the answer? Well, I think she's going to be British because she's uh, Robert King's daughter. Yeah, a dual nationality character, British, Azerbaijani. So no points for you there, Phil. Adam, your one. High fat. Okay, high fat is the industrialist in the man with the golden gun. And I think we're in, I think he lives in Bangkok. So I'm going to say Thai. That is correct, Adam. Well done. 3 2 in the lead going into our final round. Phil needs to draw level. And we have the, the hardest questions now, hopefully, for round number four. So, Phil, you have Kronstein. Oh, I'm glad I didn't get that one. Right, I'm sure. I'm sure Kronstein's from Russia with love, is he not? See, the obvious, I'd want to say Russian, but somebody's saying that he might be Czechoslovakian, but I'm going to say Russian. Well, Phil, you had it. Czechoslovakia was the correct Ah. answer. So Adam wins. Uh, I'll I'll give you your final one anyway, Adam, see if you get it. Emil Leopard Locke. Oh, Locke. Okay, (laughs) interesting. Uh, Well, for your eyes only is the film... I feel like it's from South America somewhere. Is he Argentine? He was Belgian. Oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Phil got it wrong. So uh, a win there for you, Adam. 3 2. Uh, Some of the harder ones that I missed off of the quiz uh, Quarrel from the Cayman Islands. Cayman Islander Quarrel. And Jaws, who is not a cyborg. Apparently, he's Polish. But I thought those were perhaps a bit too difficult. Yeah, I'd have never got Polish for Jaws. Incidentally, in the book I've been reading, it does James Bond Jr. actually explain Jaws's backstory. He was shot in the mouth during a bank robbery. And so metal was used to rewire not just the teeth, but his whole jaw. So, yeah, he's not actually a cyborg. We can definitively disprove that now. So, Adam, you win today's quiz. And that means you have two points alongside Phil. 
and I am lagging behind on one in the race for the Cubby Cup. But that's about it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening and joining us in the Cubby Hole. We'll be back again next week. Before then, of course, check our social media sites or send us an email if you have any messages you'd like to get to us. Uh, But that's it for this time. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good night. Or going back to Skyfall, just put Judy Dench in the jetpack, set the coordinates, have a flying off somewhere. Albert Finney's just left staring up from the mall. Well, bugger me.